great to see all of you here today. Thank you for choosing to worship with us today as we worship God through song and through our prayers to Him and also as we worship Him now through listening to His Word from John, the Gospel of John. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of uh, this book, we come this morning to John chapter 7, uh, verse 19. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 19 through 39. And the title of the message is Clarity from Christ about Christ. Clarity from Christ about Christ. If you want clarity about Christ, you want to get that clarity about Christ from Christ. And we see uh, Christ providing that in abundance in our passage today. After the conclusion of uh, World War II, the British poet and Greek uh, translator named Emile uh, Ryu typed up his translation of the works of Homer into modern English, and those works became the first books in the Penguin Classic series, which he helped to create. He was 60 years old at the time and had been an agnostic uh, for all of his life. And it was around that time that he was asked to translate the four Gospels of the New Testament for the Penguin Classic series, and he agreed to that project. When Emil Ryu's son heard about this new project that his dad was involved in, uh, he was more than intrigued. And he said, and I'm speaking of his son, who said, and I quote, it's going to be interesting to see what my father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels will make of my father, unquote. Well, his son did not have to wait for uh, very long to find out. Within a year, uh, Emil Ryu responded to the Gospels that he was translating, and wonderfully, he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And about 15 years later, he was involved in the production of the New English Bible. Such is the power of Jesus Christ, and such is the power of the remarkable presentations of Jesus that we find in the gospel accounts, including the gospel of John, that we as a congregation have been studying in recent months. But I love, personally, the way that Emil Ryu's son worded his speculation about his father, and I think his wording provides a great way for, to, for us to understand what Jesus is seeking to accomplish in our passage today. For in our passage today, Jesus stands in front of a crowd of people with wildly variant opinions about him. And he seeks to help them to know what to make of him, 
And also, he seeks to help them to know what he desires to make of them, if only they would let him. When we left off a few weeks ago in John chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus was standing before a crowd of pilgrims in Jerusalem at the temple during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we learn that there are some in this crowd who think that Jesus might be a good man. And there are others who view him as a deceiver who is leading the people astray. And then there are the religious leaders who want him dead. As much as these religious leaders hate him, though, they hear his teaching in the temple on this occasion, and they are left wondering aloud how Jesus could be so smart so educated when he had never been formally educated by the rabbis in Israel. They're stunned by his teaching. And it's at this point that Jesus makes three declarations in verses 16 through 18 that we saw a few weeks ago, which are, number one, my teaching is from the Father who sent me. Number two, the surrendered person will know the truth about my teaching. And number three, I am true. And there is no unrighteousness in me. These are the three declarations that Jesus makes in verses 16, 17, and 18 that are left ringing in the ears of those who heard them. Now, to appreciate what Jesus is going to be doing in our passage Today, we need to remember that the religious leaders have been wanting to kill Jesus ever since John chapter 5 and verse 18, after Jesus had committed the awful act of healing a lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath to add insult to injury. Jesus told this man to pick up his sleeping bag on the Sabbath and to walk with it. Another violation. To add double insult to injury, when the religious leaders confronted Jesus about his actions, he explained himself in a way that clearly revealed that he viewed himself as being equal to God. So rather than praising God for this miracle that Jesus did and recognizing him as the Messiah that he is, these religious leaders have concluded that Jesus is a blasphemous lawbreaker who is worthy of death. And so for many months now, they have been looking for a way to arrest him and have him killed. Yet here in John chapter 7 is Jesus appearing in the temple in the middle of the feast of unleavened bread and he's teaching publicly and trying to help these men to know what to make of him. In fact, beginning in verse 19, as you'll see in your notes, we're going to be observing this morning four efforts 
Four efforts of Jesus to help people know what to make of him and what he desires to make of them. And the first of these efforts, let's word it this way, you can fill in the blank if you're using the hard copy of the notes, is he defends the lawfulness of his healing of the lame man on the Sabbath. He defends the lawfulness of his healing of the lame man on the Sabbath. Observe what Jesus says to these religious leaders in verse 19. He says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus is making a stunning statement regarding these religious leaders here saying to them, none of you carries out the law. This is actually a true statement regarding me and regarding all people. And those who are humble of heart will receive this diagnosis from Jesus. In this moment, Jesus, amongst other things, is standing in front of a mass of pilgrims and he calls these religious leaders out saying, not a one of you carries out the law of God. You all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. More specifically, and we will see this as we work through the coming verses, Jesus here is faulting these men for failing to carry out the law in a particular sort of way that they're actually faulting him for doing. So as the lawbreakers that they are themselves, if they were consistent with the standard that they're trying to hold Jesus to, Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? In other words, you who don't even keep the law yourselves are wanting to kill me for some supposed violation of the law. Why would you seek to kill me in violation of the commandment that says you shall not kill? Well, the pilgrims who are gathered on this occasion are shocked by Jesus' words to these religious leaders. Evidently, many of these pilgrims had no knowledge that their religious leaders were wanting to kill Jesus. So observe how they react to Jesus' words in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? These pilgrims obviously held their religious leaders in very high esteem. And they would rather conclude that Jesus is a crazed demoniac than to believe that their religious leaders were wanting to do something so awful as to kill Jesus. In their opinion, they believe that Jesus has made a wildly reckless charge. And they're left asking him, who seeks to kill you? And when they ask this question, the religious leaders are standing there on this scene doing their best to look shocked and innocent in the face of Jesus' accusation. But observe Jesus' reply in verse 21. He doesn't even answer the question. He gets to the matter at hand. He turns to the religious leaders and look at the text. Jesus answered them. And I think we would do well to take this to mean he answered the religious leaders. 
I did one deed and you all marvel. And obviously the one deed Jesus is talking about here is his healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, again, back in chapter 5. Looking back on that deed, Jesus says to the religious leaders, I did one deed and you all marvel. And the marveling he's talking about here is not a good marveling. It's the marveling of offended amazement. It's them marveling at Jesus' brazenness to heal this man on the Sabbath as he has done, which they viewed as a major violation of their Sabbath regulations. Well, Jesus speaks here of their offended amazement and then explains why it shouldn't be such a shocking thing to them that he would do that miracle of healing on the Sabbath. And you'll find his line of reasoning utterly fascinating. Beginning in verse 32, Jesus says, For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision. You say, what does this topic have anything to do with circumcision? It does. Just track with Jesus. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. You'll notice that Jesus initially says that Moses gave them circumcision because Moses actually did give the Israelites instructions regarding this ritual. But Jesus reminds them that the ritual of circumcision goes back even farther than Moses, like centuries prior to Abraham. And Jesus here is pointing out that these religious leaders have no qualms at all about circumcising a boy on the Sabbath in their effort to actually keep the law. Write this reference down in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 And three, the Mosaic law says, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, and then verse three, on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised, unquote. So God's law prescribed that the circumcision of a boy should happen on his eighth day day after his birth, which means that if a boy was born on a Friday, guess when his eighth day would fall? You would count it out and it would be on the Sabbath when no work was allowed according to the law. And keep in mind that the Jewish rabbis were very strict about forbidding any kind of work on the Sabbath, even work of a medicinal nature. They were so finicky about this that they even had a rule against a person rinsing their mouth with vinegar in order to cure a toothache on the Sabbath because they viewed that as work. Nonetheless, these very rabbis would happily perform a circumcision on a boy if his eighth day fell on the Sabbath. 
even though that procedure involved the wielding of a tool and the application of medicinal care to the wound to facilitate healing. So essentially, every Jewish rabbi read the law of Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, and they viewed circumcision as so important that they allowed this instruction regarding circumcision to take precedence over their Sabbath restrictions, which leaves Jesus asking them in verse 23, look at the text again, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Jesus' logic here is devastating. He's essentially saying, if you guys are willing to wield a knife and perform a medical procedure from which a child will need to receive the administration of healing care on the Sabbath, how can you be angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Whatever principle would allow you guys to do such a work of circumcision on the Sabbath ought to be a principle worth applying to me healing a man on the Sabbath in order to make him whole. Isn't that great reasoning? What possible answer could these religious leaders have in response to the question that Jesus is asking them? We're going to actually observe in the next two verses that they are left in stunned silence and have nothing to say in reply to Jesus. It is at this point that Jesus delivers an earnest appeal, saying in verse 24, I imagine that there was a moment of silence, and then Jesus says, do not judge. Literally, stop judging according to appearance. Stop your judging with superficial judgment, but judge with righteous judgment, which up to now you men have not been doing, given the way you have judged me and want to kill me for healing a man on the Sabbath. And in an effort to help them and everyone else to know exactly what judgment regarding himself they should be arriving at, Jesus continues with his second effort to help his audience know what to make of him and what he desires to make of them. Effort number two, you can fill in the blank, he proclaims that he has come from the Father who is true. He proclaims that he has come from the Father who is true. Observe what happens beginning in verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? So some people in the crowd, they hear what Jesus has just said to these religious leaders, and they are observing the stunned, silent response of these religious leaders, 
and how they don't make any sort of move to answer Jesus or even to arrest Jesus. And this surprises them and leaves them wondering if these religious leaders are starting to realize that maybe Jesus is the Messiah after all. However, the way that they word their question in the Greek indicates that they expected no answer to their question. They're pretty sure that the religious rulers do not think that Jesus is really the Messiah. And part of the reason they think this way is because they themselves, the ones speaking here, do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they state their reasoning in verse 27. Observe what they say. However, we know where this man, speaking of Jesus, is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. The speakers here know that many of them, that Jesus is from Nazareth. Some of them, no doubt, even know his family or know about his family and know that Jesus is from the household of Joseph and Mary of Nazareth. And this fact leaves them persuaded that, yeah, there's no way that Jesus could be the Christ. Somehow they have it in their heads that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. You can actually search through the Old Testament high and low to find out where they got this idea. And there is nothing in the Old Testament that would make anyone arrive at this notion and think this way, but this was the popular prevailing notion about the Messiah at this particular time. And because Jesus doesn't fit this popular prevailing notion, they conclude there's no way that he can be the Messiah. So these people are reasoning aloud and saying, we know where this man is from. He's from Nazareth, from the household of Joseph and Mary. But whenever the Christ may come, everyone knows that no one's supposed to know where he came from. One thing is for sure about these people. They're pretty confident that they know all they need to know about Jesus and where he's from when they actually know so little. Jesus hears their rumblings being expressed, and he responds. Observe what he does beginning in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, and notice he cries out here. Uh, he's deeply earnest and wanting to help them to know what to make of him. He cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come from of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. If you look at verse 28 with what Jesus begins to say here, I, I like the suggestion of some commentators who put a question mark. There was no punctuation in the original Greek text uh, and so there's latitude to do this. And there are a number of commentators who suggest you put a question mark on Jesus' words in uh, verse 28 and have him saying this. We would read it this way. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, oh, so you know me and know where I am from, do you? 
Translating his words in this way reflects what I think Jesus is actually doing here. He's challenging their presumptions about how well they really know him. And then what follows is the truth about him that they obviously didn't know, where he says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. That's the Father. The Father who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Here these people were judging Jesus and writing him off because he didn't fit their notions regarding the Messiah. But Jesus is turning the tables on them and pointing out that the problem is with them. He truly came from the Father who is himself the essence of truth. And he knows the Father but they don't know the Father. And because they don't know the Father, they don't know the truth about Jesus whom the Father sent. Now, if the people in this audience had the ears to hear what Jesus is saying here, there is a diagnosis of them that they would have picked up on and should have received, and that is that they do not know the Father, but Jesus does. And they should realize that it is only through him that they will be able to come into a true knowledge of the Father. So keep in mind, and we'll actually see this throughout our passage this morning, that while Jesus is revealing himself in these verses that we're looking at, He's also revealing the truth about his listeners. And thus far, he has told his listeners that they themselves don't carry out the law of God. And he's telling them here that they don't know God. And Jesus is not done speaking here, which leads us to the third effort of Jesus to help his audience know what to make of him and what he desires to make of them. Number three, he announces that he will soon return to his father. He announces that he will soon return to his father. Observe how the people Jesus is talking to respond. Jesus has just told them that he came from the father and that they don't know the Father. Observe what they do in verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So we already know that the religious leaders were wanting to arrest or seize Jesus, but now some in the crowd, they're wanting to seize Jesus to do him harm. Why? All because Jesus has just offended them by telling them That they don't know God. That's a striking thing. Rather than receiving, humbly receiving his diagnosis and being humbled by it, they now want to seize him because he spoke the truth about themselves to him. 
Yet, as much as they were seeking for an opportunity to seize Jesus, John tells us that no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. If you track the timeline of the Gospel of John, comparing this with the other Gospel accounts, in six months from right now, Jesus' hour for arrest and crucifixion is going to come in six months. But that moment is not right now. So no one's going to touch him. By way of wonderful contrast, though, while there were some in the crowd who wanted to seize Jesus, there were others who arrived at a very different conclusion about him. Look at verse 31. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So many of the gathered crowd are believing in Jesus as the Messiah, and their line of reasoning here is very sound. Up to this point of Jesus' ministry, he's healed the sick, he's given sight to the blind, he's made the deaf able to hear and the lame able to walk, he has cast out demons, he's even raised the dead. And these people are thinking, Jesus may not fit our every notion or expectation of the Messiah as we presently understand it, but whenever the Messiah does actually come, will he do more signs than what this man has done? I don't think so. No way. Now, mind you, those expressing these thoughts are not speaking their opinions too loudly. Because they feared the religious leaders. We will learn in the next verse that the people saying what we just read are actually muttering these words or literally whispering these words about Jesus because they're afraid of being heard. But they did evidently speak loudly enough for some of the religious leaders to pick up on what they were saying. And what these religious leaders are hearing is their worst nightmare which they have to put a stop to right away. Observe what happens in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering or whispering these things about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. The chief priest would represent all those who had served in the role of high priest at any point in time, men like Caiaphas and Annas, along with the members of their family. These men were the real power brokers in Jerusalem. The Pharisees did not have the kind of power that the chief priest and their associates had, but the Pharisees were represented on the Sanhedrin, the highest-ranking authoritative body in Israel, and the Pharisees did have great favor with the people. The Pharisees were very religious and were greatly esteemed by the people. So the Pharisees and the chief priests normally didn't like each other or like hanging out with each other, but they are united in this moment in their hatred of Jesus. 
And John tells us that they sent officers to seize him. These officers are the temple police whom they are sending to arrest Jesus so that they could ultimately do away with him and have him killed. And as they're engaging in this effort, Jesus knows exactly what they are up to, and he responds accordingly. Look at verses 33 and 34. Therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. And he is speaking here of his ascension that will follow his crucifixion and resurrection. And then he says, you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You will seek me and will not find me. These are some of the most haunting words in the Bible, so much so that Martin Luther said, and I quote, these are terrible words. I do not like to read them, unquote. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders who are rejecting him, you guys don't want me here? Soon enough, you're going to get what you wish for. But that outcome will be your worst nightmare. Write down this reference, Isaiah 55, 6. The prophet Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Implied in that is you want to seek him while he may be found because there is a time when he cannot be found. And these religious leaders they have their chance to seek Jesus right now while he may be found. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, and he's standing here right in front of them, and they want him dead. They want him gone. Jesus is telling them here that he will soon be returning to his Father, and after that moment comes, there will come a point where they will seek for Jesus and they won't be able to find him. Because where he is going, they cannot come because of their unbelief. This is the awful fate that awaits these chief priests and Pharisees who persist in unbelief when their day of grace has passed when they will realize that their moment for finding Jesus had come and gone, and they missed their moment. So even here in Jesus' words is a diagnosis, a penetrating diagnosis of the spiritual condition of his audience, namely of these religious leaders, and that is that where he's going, that's heaven. They cannot come. They cannot come to heaven in their unbelief. And he's also alerting them to the fact that they don't have an unlimited amount of time to find him and discover him for the Savior that he is. If you are here today and you are stiff-arming Jesus today, 
yet you plan to maybe embrace him tomorrow or some later day, I plead with you to stop presuming upon the grace of God. You don't even know that you will live to the end of this day. You don't know that you will live to tomorrow or the next day. Realize that now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. And realize that if you don't accept Jesus now, the day may come when you may try to find him and you can't. Because the day of grace has passed. This is the warning Jesus gives. And we find it in other places in Scripture as well. Well, the religious leaders hear what Jesus is saying, and they could not have misunderstood him more. Observe what they do in verse 35. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks. So that's the Jews dispersed throughout the known world of this day, and teach the Greeks, that's Greek-speaking Gentiles, is he? He is not intending to go to the dispersion of Jews among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? Their response shows how thick-headed they really are, but it also shows how lowly they think of Jesus. Think about their logic here. Jesus has just said that he will be returning to the one who sent him. So for these leaders to now talk about Jesus leaving Israel and ultimately going to the Gentiles or the Greeks is tantamount to them saying that Jesus must have been sent by some foreign Gentile entity, which is the ultimate insult. In their minds, Jesus' ways and his teaching are so foreign to them that they assume here that he belongs more among the Gentiles than he does in Israel. What they are saying here is intended to be a slam on Jesus. But on one level, they are at least partly right. Oh, Jesus has been sent to them from a very foreign land. Only that foreign land is heaven itself. And it was the Father in heaven that had sent him. What's also fascinating about their scornful words here is that they are actually prophetic and I imagine that the Apostle John writing his gospel and writing these words has a smile on his face as he's writing these very words that I just read. These religious leaders are sneeringly asking if Jesus might be going out to the Gentile world to teach the Gentiles, little realizing that in the coming years, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He will send his disciples out from Jerusalem and through Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world and call them to make disciples of all of the nations everywhere, promising, I'm going to be with you wherever you go throughout the world. 
In fact, many decades have passed from this moment in John 7, as John is writing his gospel toward the end of the first century, and it is John who is writing this gospel account in the Greek language, somewhere near Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is in the heart of the Gentile world far removed from Jerusalem. And John writes these words that these men have said, no doubt smiling at the delicious irony. It turns out that what these men say, an exaggerated jest, is what Jesus will actually go and do, and the joke will be on them. But back to the moment we find ourselves in now, These religious leaders who hate Jesus, they can't seem to understand what he's trying to say. And I do suspect that the hair is standing up on the back of their neck. They're haunted by his words. In verse 36, they try to joke it off. They say, what is this statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. What is he saying? And John leaves them here in this moment, utterly lost and scratching their heads in confusion, unable to understand what Jesus is saying. Well, it seems that somehow in this moment, Jesus disappears and evades arrest. And the next two or three days of the Feast of Tabernacles continues without Jesus doing anything that John records for us, but Jesus does make one more appearance at this feast at the very end. And this leads us to the final effort of Jesus to help his audience know what to make of him and what he desires to make of them. And man, you can just feel the grace. Like he could have stormed off and said, I am done with you guys. And yet he shows up again. Before this feast is over, number four, he invites people to drink of him and experience the blessing of the Spirit. He invites people to drink of him and experience the blessing of the Spirit. Observe what happens beginning in verse 37. John says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood And cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What words of amazing grace and invitation from Jesus to them. To appreciate what is happening here, it would be helpful to know about one of the rituals that would happen on each day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we're in right now. Before the morning sacrifice would be offered, a priest would, in the temple, would take a golden pitcher and lead a procession from the temple down to the Pool of Siloam, which was fed by a spring. And he would fill the pitcher with water and then carry it back 
to the temple while the people recited Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The priests would then approach the altar in the temple and pour out the water at the altar, at the base of the altar as an offering to God. This ritual served as a celebration of God's good gift of water to mankind, and it also served as kind of an acted out prayer for rain in the coming months of the rainy season that awaited them. Speaking of this ritual, one ancient rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, said this, and I quote, bring the libation of water at the Feast of Tabernacles that the showers may be blessed to thee. And whosoever will not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles shall have no rain, unquote. So you can bet the people showed up for the Feast of Tabernacles because they valued the rain that would nourish their fields and their vineyards and fill their cisterns and rivers with the water that they needed to drink in order to sustain their lives. This ritual drawing of the water from the pool of Siloam and pouring it out at the base of the altar in the temple was a high and holy moment on each day of this feast of unleavened bread, a moment that the pilgrims love to participate in with joy. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, it says, and I quote, He who has never seen the joy of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy, unquote. That was their way of saying, you haven't lived until you have participated in one of these water drawings at the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's against this backdrop that Jesus says what he says here in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the day that represented the sacred close of the Jewish festival year, Jesus takes his stand in some spot that would be visible to many. And in verses 37 and 38, he cries out and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The people gathered here are very mindful of their need for rain, and they've been praying all week for water from heaven to meet their physical needs in the months ahead. And Jesus stands here to say that he is the answer to their prayers in ways they could not have even begun to imagine. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, literally let him continuously be coming to me and continuously be drinking of me, and he will have rivers of living water flowing up from within him. What does it mean to come to Jesus and drink? How do we do that? We do it by believing in Jesus, which is why Jesus says in verse 38, he who believes in me. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus says here, as the scripture said, it leads us naturally to think that 
we will find what he's about to say somewhere in the Old Testament, but we don't actually find this exact statement anywhere in the Old Testament. So it's very likely that Jesus is drawing from a variety of Old Testament passages and he's synthesizing them into one. It's the gist of the message of the Old Testament that he's quoting from here. But write down some of these references. Isaiah 44, 3. God points his people to a future day and he says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. More to the point of what Jesus is saying here in John 7 in Isaiah 58 verse 11. Isaiah 58 verse 11 The prophet speaks of a future day and says, The Lord will satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. There are other passages beyond these, but you get the drift In Isaiah 55, verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And Jesus here, on this occasion in John 7, is declaring that he is the water that Isaiah was calling them to. One more reference in Zechariah 14, verse 8. Zechariah speaks of the day of the Lord, and he says, and I quote, In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea, unquote. That passage in Zechariah is speaking, I believe, of a literal waters that will flow from Jerusalem in the day of the Lord, But it's undeniable that a harbinger of that later literal fulfillment will be when the living waters of the Spirit will flow from the early Christians in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and then flow to the uttermost parts of the earth. In saying what he says here, Jesus is promising more than the satisfaction of a person's thirst. He's saying that if a person comes to him and drinks of him by believing in him, he will meet that person's needs in the deepest parts of their being, so much so that from that person's innermost being, rivers of living water will flow forth. When we're drinking deeply of the stuff of this world, like Rayshon was telling us last week, It not only doesn't satisfy, but it leaves us more thirsty than when we begun. If we drink of Jesus, he will satisfy us. And coming from our innermost being will be rivers of living water flowing forth. In other words, we will be left overflowing with rivers of living water that can refresh and bless others as it flows out of us to them. 
such a person who drinks of Jesus and experiences the goodness of this promise will not be a scorched desert, nor will he or she be some kind of pond that holds stagnant water that doesn't go anywhere or go forth to anyone else. No, such a person who comes to Jesus and believes in him and drinks of him will become like a well-watered garden containing deep within themselves a spring of living water that moves out of them toward others and blesses and refreshes them. Who would not want this? Look at verse 39 and observe the Apostle John's commentary on Jesus' words. John says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the rivers of living water springing forth from those who believe in Jesus is, John is telling us, is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive beginning on the day of Pentecost, which is literally seven and a half months from where we are right now in John 7. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God will be effusively poured out upon the 120 and will spring forth from them to 3,000 others who will believe in Jesus and from them to others and so on and so on down through the centuries all the way down to today where these springs of living water have reached us here in this distant land called the United States. And Jesus wants these springs of the Spirit to continue to flow from you and me to even more people still. In verse 39, John wants us to know that at the time Jesus originally spoke these words, the Spirit was not yet given like He would be given on the day of Pentecost. And the reason that He had not yet been given in that special way is because Jesus had not yet been glorified through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead and through his ascension to heaven. Once Jesus surrenders himself in death and dies upon a cross and is raised and ascended, then this explosive pouring forth of the Spirit will begin to happen. Just as we close this morning, I, I love what Jesus does in our passage today. He's speaking to a mixed multitude. This is kind of a chaotic scene when you just let the text speak for itself. People all over the place in their view of him and their intentions regarding him. And he speaks to this mixed multitude in the temple and he's telling them the straight truth about himself because he wants them to have a right view of him. And he also speaks truth about them that would have required humility on their part to receive. He told them that they were failing to carry out the very law that they were accusing him of violating. He told them that they did not know his father. 
He told them that the day is coming when they will not be able to find him. He tells them that they will not be able to come where he is going because of their unbelief. This is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. He tells us the truth about ourselves. If you want to know the truth about yourself, get to know Jesus and learn the truth about yourself through him. So Jesus speaks these hard truths about those he's speaking to in this passage. But then on the final day of the feast, Jesus utters this amazingly gracious and generous invitation saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he promises them and he promises us that if we do this, he will make us something different than we ever were apart from him. Apart from Jesus, All of us are like a parched desert. And Jesus promises that he can change our souls from being deserts into being watered gardens from which others can draw much nourishment. He can turn us into people who are so full of the soul-satisfying spirit that we cannot hold it in. But coming forth from our innermost being are rivers, plural, of living water. The Holy Spirit expressing himself as we minister to others through our words and through our deeds and through our witness in the world. This is what Jesus can do, and it's what he promises to do in the life of any person who comes to him and believes in him and drinks of him. And so I ask you this morning, what will it be for you? What do you make of the Jesus of John's gospel here? Just as importantly, what will you let him make of you? Do you just want a Savior who speaks flattering words to you? Telling you sweet little lies that you want to hear? Or do you want a Savior who speaks unvarnished truth about you to you? But then who gives you the water of life to wash it down. And then fills you up with living water that is worth happily passing on to others. Don't you want a Savior like that? A Savior who speaks such truth, but then who graciously offers himself to you and invites you to come to him and drink of him and who promises that he will change you from being a parched desert into a living spring. If you have never believed in Jesus for salvation, I plead with you this morning to come to him and to drink of him today. Stop running to other things that you already know are not going to quench your thirst. They're only going to leave you more thirsty. Let Jesus quench your thirst. Obey your thirst 
and come to Jesus and drink of him. And don't just make up your own view of Christ. Let Christ be the one who shapes your view of Christ. And then believe in the Christ whom Christ tells you to believe in. If you do that, Jesus will save you and he will make of you something greater and richer and more nourishing than you can even begin to imagine. Because that's what Jesus wants you to make of him. And it's what he longs to make of you. Let's pray together. Lord, we've covered uh, a number of verses this morning, but the action is in these verses is, is riveting, it's compelling, seeing Jesus in the midst of a confusing situation, speaking with such clarity about his audience and about himself, and then inviting them in his grace to partake of him. We find ourselves, Lord, in a wildly confusing world today. And we're thankful that we have one, a Savior in you, that you always know the right thing to say, the right truth to speak, the hard truth to speak but also the gracious invitations to deliver. Help us to model, Lord, the very example that we see in our passage, but most importantly, Lord, make of each of us deep drinkers of Jesus, that we would imbibe lavishly of him. If there are some in this room, Lord, that have never yet come to Jesus and take in their first drink, I just so pray, Lord, that today would be, even this moment would be the moment when they would take their first drink and begin to experience the salvation and transformation that you promised to those who drink of you by believing in you. But for those of us who know you, Lord, make us more lavish drinkers of you than we often are. Help us not to be content to just sip on you occasionally, but, but to drink lavishly that we might become the watered, well-watered springs that you promise and say here that you long to make of us I can't help but when looking at this passage, Lord, but to be thankful for uh, our brother, Pastor Mike. We miss him here. I miss him. But we're thankful that he is in Pakistan together with uh, Tim Carnes and Pastor Morris and we just pray, Lord, in the remaining days of their 
ministry in Pakistan. We pray that you would replenish their spirits, refresh their souls, and may the rivers of living water just be pouring out of Pastor Mike and Pastor Tim and Pastor Morris, just flowing from them in abundance to bring nourishment and encouragement to the saints and the blessings of salvation to those who still have yet to call upon your name. And help us. Mike is in Pakistan. We are in Riverside or wherever any of us are going to go this week. Use us, Lord. Make us well-watered gardens and may the rivers of life flow from us and bring blessing and nourishment and life to others wherever we go. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,